Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I am back on dry land. I was away for a week on a cruise with the real estate guys. And remember, I mentioned on the last podcast I did before the cruise that I was going to try to do some podcasts uh, from the ship. But I did do one. But the internet connection was so bad on the ship that it couldn't upload. And so I wasn't able to do any. So I've obviously got quite a bit to say. A lot went on while I was out at sea. Although one comment I want to make about something that happened on the cruise, or actually before the cruise, because they started their um, investment summit at sea on land. There was some talking or presentations uh, before we left. And... There was the chief economist from Fannie Mae, who was a featured keynote speaker. And I'm thinking, ah, this will be great. It'll be a really big contrast because this guy is going to be a a big cheerleader, all gung-ho about the real estate market. You know, he's speaking to an audience of real estate investors, and he's the chief economist from Fannie Mae. And again, these are normally just mouthpieces that are there for propaganda more than economics. They're trying to justify the belief that real estate market is sound and that prices will keep rising. And I was very, very pleasantly surprised as I listened to this guy's presentation. I really didn't find much wrong with it. And and then I went and had a private conversation with him after the fact. And we had a great discussion. And we didn't disagree on anything, anything. And this guy is the chief economist of Fannie Mae. So he is very, very bearish Uh, on the housing market. He is very much against uh, Fed policy. I mean, he's, you know, he's a great economist. He's against the minimum wage. I mean, we had a long conversation and we really disagreed on nothing. And I have no idea how this guy got his job. I mean, I don't even know how much longer he'll keep his job. I figured you'd have to flunk a test on economics to be an economist from Fannie Mae. Yet this guy knows his stuff. And, And so, you know, go figure. I'm not sure how many other economists like this are hanging out at quasi-government agencies or, or government agencies, 
but quite surprised to find an insider uh, that actually understands this and, you know, um, how much longer he's going to keep his job or how much he can he can say. And in fact, I think some of the things he said to me in the private conversation were, you know, more extreme as far as accuracy and negativity than uh, the more public comments. But even the public comments that he made in his presentation were very sobering, especially when you're talking to an audience of real estate investors. So it's just not Peter Schiff. Uh, that sees these problems looming on the horizon in the bond market, in the real estate market, and the economy. It's actual government economists. Now, they're, they're in the minority, right? Just like I'm in the minority for Wall Street-type economists or investment economists. But they are out there. And uh, so it's good to know that uh, there are some good people uh, working within the government. It's just that, you know, you really have to dig deep to be able to find them. But I want to get into... The topics of this uh, podcast, a lot to talk about. Let's start with the non-farm payroll report, the jobs report that came out on Friday. That is usually the most highly anticipated economic release of the month. And everybody was enthusiastic about this report. Earlier in the week, we got the ADP number, the the private sector number, which is normally a precursor to the uh, official government number. And that number was way ahead of estimates. So there was a lot of enthusiasm that we would have a beat for the official government uh, March number. They were looking for 175,000 jobs, which was going to be a a reduction from the 235,000 jobs that were originally reported for the month of February. Well, the actual number of jobs that were created was not 175,000, but 98,000. Big miss on the headline number. And in fact, they actually revised downward the previous month. So they took that down from 235 to 219. And now we got 98 versus 175. And the private payrolls were even worse. They were looking for 170,000 and we only got 89,000, 89,000 week number, average hourly earnings were in line or slightly below. They were up two tenths. They were looking for up three tenths, but they did take up the prior month from up two tenths to up three tenths. So it was a push. But the hours worked were not only slightly below estimates uh, of 34.4, it was 34.3, but they took last month's February's and went down from 34.4 to 34.3. So that means that Americans worked fewer hours, which means they earned less money because they worked fewer hours or fewer time. So again, that is going to feed in. And a lot of the bad news was in the retail. We lost jobs. And I've been talking about this for a while what's going on in the retailing sector. Companies are closing down, going bankruptcy. You know, I'm putting up article after article on my Facebook page about retail bankruptcies, about retail sales, about shopping centers. And I know early on people dismissed this, that, oh, well, you know, people are shopping on the internet. People didn't just discover the internet this year. The internet's been around. Online shopping has been growing for years. But what hasn't happened is this massive bankruptcies. I mean, the retail sector today is in worse shape than it was. If you want to look at store closures and bankruptcies and probably now almost layoffs, retailing now is worse than it was in 2008, the year of the Great Recession. So this is a a harbinger of bad things to come. You know, and by the way, Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon.com, is now the second richest 
person in the world behind Bill Gates. And there's probably a pretty good chance. I mean, we only need maybe about another eight or nine percent appreciation in Amazon stock, which it can do any, you know, any given week. I mean, who, you know, whatever. But a small appreciation. And he is going to pass up Bill Gates as the richest uh, man on the planet. And his fortunes are directly proportionate to the demise of the rest of the retail sector. Now, of course, if they actually pass the border-adjusted tax, which I doubt is going to happen, but that would be uh, the, the final nail in the retail coffin. But it looks like, and I just heard this today, by the way, that Donald Trump has now completely scrapped his tax reform plan. Right? It's gone. They're starting all over again. So the, the tax plan that he ran on doesn't exist anymore. So we had this huge rally in the stock market based on repealing Obamacare. Whoop, that didn't happen based on comprehensive tax reform, that ain't happening either. And in fact, and I said this early on, and I said this was the scary part, that if Trump isn't going to work with the conservatives and the Republicans, he's going to tack left and try to come up with a tax plan that involves the Democrats. And it looks like that's what's going to happen. And no good can come from bipartisanship. When the Republicans and the Democrats are working together Right. That's when you really have to watch your pocketbook. That's when the most damage gets done. And, and so you have the economy uh, weakening as evidenced by the retail sales. In fact, after this number came out, the Atlanta Fed came out and reduced their estimate for first quarter GDP. And it was back at one at one point two on Friday morning. It, it had gone down to point nine. And then, I don't know, some data came out and the Atlanta Fed got a little more optimistic. So they went up to 1.2. And then after we got the disappointing jobs number, they revised it all the way down to 0.6. 0.6? I mean, that's practically zero. We were at 3.4 in February. On February 1st, we have knocked almost three full percentage points off the growth forecast for Q1 GDP. Yet the market is oblivious. In fact, the market even rallied initially on the weaker than expected jobs number. I mean, the Dow was up maybe 150, 170 points. Now, it closed negative, which is uh, not very good technical action for those of you who are still bullish on the U.S. stock market. But they shrugged it off. In fact, a lot of people were saying, oh, don't worry about the weak number. It was because of the weather. I mean, I kid you not. They were blaming this on the weather, and so that was why we don't have to worry about it, because it's the weather. I mean, I never hear them dismissing good news and saying, well, yes, the news is good, but don't, don't, don't pay any attention to it, because the weather, right? We had really good weather, uh, and so it skewed the data, right? The weather never makes the data better. It only makes it worse. And whatever the weather is, I don't even know if it's good, good weather or bad weather, right? Is it too hot or too cold, right? What type of weather is it that screws up the data? But apparently, it's only bad news that is the fault of the weather. There's never anything that good happens because of the weather, regardless of what the weather is, right? You notice that, right? It's very convenient. So they shrugged this off because it was the weather. Well, there's a storm brewing, and it's not the weather. It's an economic storm. It's coming, right? And in fact, I think what the catalyst is going to be to finally get Congress to enact Tax cuts. And it's going to be tax cuts. It's not going to be much in the way of reform. We're probably going to get some tax cuts. But it's going to come as an economic stimulus package because we're going to be back in recession. 
And of course, once we're in recession, well, then everybody's going to want a tax cut, right? Because we're going to need an economic stimulus. And then they can make it a temporary one, right? They could just make it for 10 years. Because if they make the tax cuts permanent, then somehow they have to find an offset, right? Because they're not allowed to increase the deficit on a permanent basis. But they can have a tax cut that sunsets after 10 years, and then the sky's the limit as far as the, the debt's concerned. And so once we get into a a recession, then everybody is going to want a stimulus. Nobody's going to want to vote against the tax cut when there is a, a recession coming. So everybody's going to jump on board. And of course, that means the budget deficit is going to absolutely explode through the charts. In fact, I read one story today, and I'm not sure how real this is. We'll see. But there's some proposal banding about now about repealing the payroll tax, right? The tax that employer pays half and the employee pays half. But of course, the employee pays it all. He just doesn't realize that because the employer gets his half from the employee by just reducing the wages that would otherwise be paid to the worker. Instead, that money gets sent to the government. But the dumb worker doesn't realize uh, that he's paying the full freight. Of course, if you become self-employed, then you actually see that you're paying both halves of the payroll tax. But in reality, uh, the worker always pays both half. He just pays the other half indirectly. But they're talking about getting rid of that entirely and just disallowing the deduction for wages and salaries that are paid from your a business income tax or a corporate income tax, meaning that if a business uh, hires somebody that you cannot deduct from your profits, the labor, the wages and salaries that you pay your workers. Now, if they're dumb enough to do that, then that is, I mean, that lights out. I mean, imagine what's going to happen to these minimum wage workers. All these states have jacked up the minimum wage. Imagine now you got to pay unskilled workers $12, $13, $14 an hour, and then you can't even deduct the cost from your income tax? I mean, come on. But, of course, you can still deduct the cost of computers and robots that you can use instead of workers. So that is an asinine trial balloon which, you know, again, will probably sink like the Hindenburg. But we'll see if that actually gets any traction. But it's a very, very dumb idea. But, of course, that's all they consider, right? I mean, that shows you how dumb some of our legislators are, that they actually would consider something so dumb. I mean, can you imagine a better uh, tax on employment or better way to discourage employers from hiring people by saying you cannot even deduct from your own income the cost, the expense of hiring other people? I mean, Who's going to, I mean, talk about a tax on hiring. That's even worse than the payroll tax that exists today. Now, it's interesting, too. I mentioned that the stock market initially rallied and then sold off uh, by the end of the day. You know, we never got a real move in the dollar or the gold market to the weaker than expected non-farm payroll. Normally, you get a print this low, right? You have high hopes and then those expectations are not met. Normally, the dollar index would tank and, and gold would take off. That didn't happen because the night before, right, Donald Trump decided to make America great again by bombing Syria, right? You know, and again, for those of you who had hoped that we we're going to have a different foreign policy, uh-uh, right? How Trump didn't waste much time, right? It's less than his first hundred days and he's already dropping bombs on other countries. And the irony of it is now you have a lot of critics of Trump in the news. You have some of the left wing critics. Now all of a sudden, oh, Donald Trump is being presidential. All of a sudden they like Trump. Why? Because he bombed somebody. I mean, what's presidential about bombing somebody? I mean, 
I think it's more presidential not to bomb somebody. When some of you, when some of your advisors say, "Hey, let's drop some bombs," how about saying, "Hey, maybe not. Maybe you know, maybe that hasn't gotten us anywhere." I mean, how many bombs have we dropped under Obama or under Bush? You know, and what did that get us, right? You know, but all of a sudden he's president now, and I guess he wants to get involved in, in a war because I guess it's more fun to be the president. When, you know, you're dropping bombs because, you know, you're the commander in chief. You want to command. I mean, it's like some kind of a board game. And now all of a sudden it gets exciting because he gets in the war room and you get to decide to drop some bombs and, 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 and be the hero. And then, of course, the minute you start bombing anybody, everybody, everybody, now everybody's your friend all of a sudden, right? Everybody, nobody can criticize you because everybody has to be patriotic and we all have to come together for the cause. And you never that, you know, that movie Wag the Dog. Well, I mean, they're wagging it already, and it's not even 100 days into this presidency. And, of course, now, I mean, maybe one of the reasons that they did this was to deflect some of the criticism that Trump was a puppet of Russia, right? Because there was all these allegations that, you know, the Russians hacked the election and he's working with Russia. Well, of course, the Russians are obviously pissed off uh, because we bombed Syria, unless the conspiracy, if you're really a conspiracy theorist, you'd say that, okay, Trump— and Putin, you know, they, they, they agreed on this, like on the slide, just to throw people off the scent. Hey, let's have you do something that looks like it pisses us off and that'll deflect all the criticism. Now, I doubt that that's actually happened, but who knows? I bet there's going to be some conspiracy theorists that might say, aha, they're just trying to throw us off the trail and they really are in cahoots. But, you know, if you thought that this was going to be a different foreign policy, if you thought this was going to be non-interventionalist, Think again, right? This is the same old, same old. I've said this before. Donald Trump is aligning himself with the Republican establishment. He is fighting the Freedom Caucus. Those are the Tea Party guys. Those are the guys that came to Washington to drain the swamp before Trump you know, was even there. They wanted to change Washington. They wanted to fight both the Republicans and the Democrats. And Trump is not leading that organization. He's not joining. He is fighting them. He is actually trying to work to help them, you know, not get reelected, to try to purge them from the Republican Party so that he has an easier time moving his agenda through Congress. But the agenda that he wants to move is not the agenda that's going to make America great again. And we're not going to make America great again uh, by bombing, uh, by bombing Syria. But when we drop those bombs, right, we created a bid for the dollar. Because whenever we start causing international problems, the dollar just goes up. I mean, it still has this reflexive safe haven bid to it. So the minute bombs are dropped, people stop buying the dollar. And so I think it was that that was an overriding factor. Now, gold, gold was already up about 10, 12 bucks before we got the non-farm payroll number. And I think it might have added two or three dollars and then it sold off and gold only closed up about a couple of bucks. And so if gold was not up, if gold had not rallied the night before on the Syria bombing, if gold had started the morning unchanged or negative a couple of bucks, I bet we would have closed above 1260. I bet we would have had a nice run in the price of gold. But instead, they ended up selling it off. And here's why. Because whenever there is one of these um, you know, bombings or military action, gold initially spikes on this, oh, let's buy gold because of the, the political uncertainty. And those rallies never hold. They always sell off. And it's almost like, again, it's computer programs. People think, oh, you buy gold because of 
uh, problems, military problems, uncertainty. No, you don't. I mean, that's why the people who don't buy gold think other people do, right? The people who have never bought an ounce of gold, right, who don't actually own gold, and they're trying to figure out why people like me are, they say, well, it's because they're worried about political uncertainty, they're worried about war. I don't even think about those things when I buy gold. Yet, whenever it happens, there is a run-up in the price of gold, and they immediately sell it off. It happens every time. And so I think that's what happened on Friday. Gold was up because of the bombing in Syria, and then people sold into it. And so the market wasn't really trading on the weaker-than-expected non-farm payroll. They were selling into that rally. But ultimately, what's good for gold is not the fact that you know we dropped these bombs, but the fact that the economy is weaker. Now, to the extent that we get involved in a war, if something like that happens, the reason that's good for gold is not because of the uncertainties surrounding the war. It's because wars are generally financed through inflation. Countries pay for a war by printing money. They run bigger deficits. That's what's good for gold. If we finance the war legitimately by cutting government spending or raising taxes, you know, then that would be a different story. But politicians never uh, are, have the courage to do that. So it's the financing of a war. And of course, wars also undermine economic growth. They may be profitable for certain segments of the economy, like the military industrial complex, but resources diverted uh, to the military are diverted away from some other sectors. And so it's not a net positive for the economy. It's a net negative. So weakening the economy, creating inflation, that's what's good for gold. I have no idea what is going to come out of this situation, but you know what? It doesn't look good. I mean, the fact that we're already doing this, that this is the precedent, this is the the uh, the Trump foreign policy, uh, should give people pause who were expecting something different. And of course, we're not getting the uh, Obama Obamacare repeal. We're not getting the uh, the comprehensive tax reform. I mean, we're not getting anything. Yet the markets have not surrendered really any of the Trump rally that was all based on the expectation of a bunch of things that, as I said from the beginning, are not going to happen. And what is going to happen is a recession, right? And that's going to interrupt everybody's plans. That's what Atlanta Fed is already forecasting. Now, we'll see. They're going to come on Friday with another number. We get uh, consumer income and spending numbers on Friday. And who knows? We could get this number dangerously close to zero by the end of this week. A couple of other important things I want to point out that happened last week while I was at sea. There was a front page article on the Wall Street Journal about the Fed's 2% inflation target. And remember, I've been saying this for years, that that was a moving target. That as soon as we got up to around 2%, they were going to find an excuse to raise it. And that's exactly what the Wall Street Journal article was confirming, that Fed officials are now rethinking this 2% number and that, hey, you know, maybe 3% is okay, right? Maybe, why why are we fixated on 2%? Of course, I knew they were going to do that because they, they know they can't fight the inflation. They can't raise interest rates. Now, the article did not say that they were going to officially raise the target, from 2% now to you know some higher number. But what they did write about is that the Fed is going to be looking at 2% as an average, meaning that, hey, we were below 2% for three or four or five, six years. Well, we can theoretically be above it for a similar period of time by the same amount and that it'll all average out. But this is a terrible uh, uh, mistake for the Fed to make because 
if you allow inflation to be higher, let's say inflation was 1% for a few years. And I say, okay, well, let's let it be 3% because, you know, the average between three and one is two. It's not going to work that way because if you let inflation get to three, it's not going to stay at three. Then it's going to go to four. Then what are you going to do? Well, okay, we can allow four for a little bit because if we average four, you know, because we, we, we were at one for so long, we can let it go at four because it's still going to average out. Then next thing you know, you're at five or six. I mean, you let this inflation genie out of the bottle. There is no way to put it back up in again. And you really have to start jacking up interest rates. This idea that we're going to look at inflation as an average over time. I mean, first of all, if the cost of living really starts to go up, right? I mean, is that some kind of consolation? That, I, you know, the Fed is going to say, yes, you know, we, we had a big jump in the cost of living this year. But you remember three or four years ago when the cost of living didn't go up that much? So it's all averaging out. You know, if the economy is weak now and now you're going to let the cost of living really shoot up and what you're basically telling people is, oh, don't worry, because four or five years ago it didn't go up that much. So you shouldn't complain that it's going up a lot now. I mean, is that the kind of news? Is that the kind of monetary policy that we want? But it's exactly what I've been saying we were going to get that the Federal Reserve was all talk, right, all bark and no teeth when it came to inflation fighting because they can't fight it because we have so much debt. We're so broke. They can't raise interest rates. And the Fed owns a huge portfolio of U.S. Treasuries. And if they raise interest rates, the value of that portfolio collapses, which also brings me to the second article I read during the week, which is the idea that the Federal Reserve now is indicating that they want to begin to shrink their balance sheet. Later this year, right? Remember, they've been talking about this since, I think, 2009, 2010, when they first started to blow up the balance sheet. They were talking about shrinking it. But originally, Ben Bernanke said, we're going to shrink it by selling. See, they dropped that years ago. And now they said, well, we're going to shrink it simply by not rolling over the maturing bonds. And now they're saying that they want to begin that process sometime this year. And of course, Raising interest rates just complicates the matter for the Fed because it brings down the value of the portfolio that they have. But to the extent that they don't roll over their bonds, who is going to buy those bonds that the Federal Reserve is going to have to sell? I mean, that the Treasury is going to have to sell if it's not the Fed. Let's say the Fed has $100 billion worth of Treasuries that it decides it's not going to roll over, right? It's just going to ask Congress for its money back. Well, Congress doesn't have the money. They don't have their own printing press. So if the Treasury, rather, is going to repay the Fed $100 billion, they have to go and sell a bond to the private sector to get the $100 billion to give it to the Fed. And when the Fed gets the money, they just destroy it, right? They're just, they're just getting back their own IOUs. It's like, it's like you write a check to somebody and they give you back your check. You just tear it up. It doesn't exist anymore, right? So that's theoretically what happens if the Federal Reserve decides they don't want to roll over uh, some treasuries, then the Treasury has to repay the Fed and the Fed tears up its IOUs. It destroys the dollars and the money supply shrinks. What's the odds that this is actually going to happen? I mean, probably zero, especially since we're about to be in recession. But if the Fed really were going to try to do this, the first thing they'd have to do is stop raising interest rates. Because if they're raising interest rates and they're trying to shrink their balance sheet, then it makes these bonds even less attractive for the private sector, which means interest rates move up that much higher in order to attract private demand. Because remember, when the Federal Reserve buys treasuries, they couldn't care less what the yield is. They're not doing it as an investment. 
They're doing it for political purposes. They're doing it because they think it helps the economy. But when a private investor buys a treasury, he's got to, it's got to, it's got to make sense. It's got to be a good yield uh, to maturity. It's got to be a good investment. And if you real, if you think that bond prices are going to fall, then why even, why buy? The, the yields are still too low. And then if you add into that, the risk of a capital decline. So that is a big article. But if they're actually going to do that, and if people believe that, the market should come under some serious pressure to the extent that traders actually believe that the Fed is contemplating allowing its balance sheet to shrink, which means a contraction of the money supply, which means an increase in interest rates as the amount of bonds that the government needs to sell to the private sector goes up. Plus, we're going into recession. And what does recession mean? That means our budget deficits are going to grow. They're already growing. So if the budget deficits are getting bigger, then the Treasury already has to sell more bonds to finance larger deficits. And now if they have to sell even more bonds to repay the Federal Reserve for the bonds that's no longer rolling over, the, the real amount of money that the U.S. Treasury is going to have to tap into, into the private sector, is going to explode which means none of this can happen. This is all a pipe dream. This is all fantasy. The Fed can talk about shrinking their balance sheet all they want, but the reality is that balance sheet is going up, not down. I think the next big move in the Fed's balance sheet is going to be to expand it again, right? Whether they're going to come out this year and, and, and label it QE4 or not, that's where we're headed. Uh, but the markets don't know that. So you've got a lot of bad news out there. You've got weaker than expected. Uh, economic growth. You got the Fed pretending that they're about to shrink uh, the balance sheet, right? Throwing uh, uh, gasoline on this fire. Uh, you, you've got the failure of the repeal of Obamacare. You've now got the disintegration of, of tax reform. I mean, what's holding the market up? I mean, infrastructure, the idea that we're going to have a big infrastructure stimulus. So I think we are heading for a perfect storm here. We should have continued weakness in the stock market. Gold, yes, you know, it failed a couple of times above uh, the 1260 level, but it's holding support around 1250. It's in a very, very narrow range. I think it's getting ready for another huge move up, 1300, 1350. Dollar index did manage to get back above 100. It's about 101. It got down below 99 was the low. It got high 98. But to me, it looks like the dollar has still topped out. I think the dollar is getting ready to go down. Gold's getting ready to go up. Stocks are going to come under a lot of pressure. I don't believe the stock market's going to crash because I don't think the Federal Reserve will let it crash. But in order to stop that from happening, it's going to be a game changer in their rhetoric. It's going to be a game changer in policy. And you can't wait for it to happen. You know, you can't wait for the Fed to ring a bell and reverse course. You know, there are people out there that think, well, let's wait. If the, when the Fed, you know, reverses course, maybe that's when you buy gold. Maybe that's when you sell the dollar. Look, you can probably do it then. But it's going to be much better to do it now because the dollar is going to lose a lot of ground between now and that decision, between now and the time the Fed comes clean. And I think the price of gold is going to move up a lot higher between now and the time the Fed has to show its cards. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. 
They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams and How to Avoid Getting Ripped Off for Free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.